0: From Data Rails,
1: this is FPNA Today.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, AKA the FPNA guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FP&A Today is brought to you by DataRail's financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we will welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We will provide you with actual advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FP&A. Before I introduce today's guest, we'd just like to remind you that if you have not left a review for us, we would appreciate it. You can leave that wherever you listen to the show, Spotify, Apple, Google, any other platform that you listen to it on. And also, as a reminder, if you go to the Earmark app, you can download our recent episodes and receive CPE credit for listening to the episode and answering a few brief questions. With that, I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show. Kevin, welcome to the show. Cool.
1: Thank you hugely for having me. Paul, it's not the first time we've done a podcast together, because I remember you appeared on my show, The Gross CFO Show, on your very first day as the fp a guy.
0: Correct, yes. I think it was my first full-time day or first day of the business it was somewhere in March. Yes, I remember that, Kevin. I can't believe it's uh, been seven, eight months now of the business. That was that was a lot of fun. So I'm uh, excited to now have you on, on the show I'm doing here. So it should be a lot of fun. So, a couple things about Kevin before we uh, get into the questions. He comes to us from the UK. He is currently the Chief Operating Officer for Grow CFO, and he is the CEO of Applebee Consulting and Coaching. He hosts the popular podcast, The Grow CFO Show, as well as the Next 100 Days podcast. Kevin started his career as an auditor worked in accounting, and then moved on to some consulting roles before starting his own uh, business and working with a gross CFO. So Kevin, could you start by just giving us a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you're
1: at? Yeah, it's it's a long and contrived story, Paul. And as you say, started off, in audit, and you know, I never really wanted to be an auditor. So the day my training contract finished, with not a big full firm, but a, a firm in the, the next tier down, I found a job as an accountant in industry. I moved into a, a financial controller role in a marine insurance company, but very, very quickly, I was uh, tempted away by an offer for the from a company that was was number one in the FTSE 100 at the time. Company that doesn't exist anymore, ICI. I joined ICI's agricultural division in the UK initially in their internal audit team. And I moved on from there after about 18 months to be business accountant for ICI's European plastics business. And really that was, that was my first exposure into FP and A. Now back then, FP and A as a term didn't really exist, but we were the business accounting team. We didn't do any financial accounting. We pulled together the monthly business result for the business unit. And that was pulling bits from you know, ICI group companies across Europe. So we were taking bits of results from out of about 10 or 12 ICI legal entities and pulling together into the result for the, the plastics business and its product groups. We were setting budgets, putting forecasts together. Now, the, the whole world revolved around data. And analyzing the, the sales, the cost of sales and understanding activity based costing, things like that. I really, really got into it. And that sort of accounting ever since was really part of my career. But you know, to move on, ICI got, well, the business I was in in ICI got sold to the German company BASF. BASF merged their business with ours and they took control back to Germany. So on day one of the, the acquisition, of my job ended up in Germany. I did a few internal things in BASF. I looked at another acquisition that they'd taken from a former ICI company, Zeneca, and helped integrate that into the BASF family. But it was pretty clear there wasn't a job. So I, I moved on and jumped over into PwC as a management consultant. And I ended up being part of the PwC team, that developed a balanced scorecard methodology that we rolled out a number of clients. I implemented balanced scorecards across the British Army's supply chain, which was a, a really fascinating assignment, and ended up in a, a group in PwC called iAnalytics. And there we were, we were going out and implementing planning and budgeting solutions for clients. Ended up doing a, a fascinating planning and budgeting project with a, a holiday company. Where they'd started trying, instead of budgeting by financial year, they started trying to budget by holiday brochure and a holiday brochure typically lasts for 36 months from the very start of getting the properties, sending people away, paying for stuff and so on. And it became a really interesting exercise working out profitability of things with a cycle that was way longer than the financial year. So that, that's the kind of things that I've been doing. And as time went on, I ended up getting more and more involved in building investment cases for new implementations of things, and became a little bit of an expert in that, and ended up as an independent in my own company, and I was generally joining in giving people that sort of support with projects as they go on. And uh, roll the clock forward a few years, we got to COVID. And around about the time COVID started, I was being plagued by a chap called Dan Wells. Dan is our founder and CEO at Grow CFO. And Dan and I realized that in lockdown, I'd ended up in the classroom teaching lots of things I did with clients, many of them in the FP&A space, some of them in the business strategy space. And I was gradually trying to take some of those things online. Dan had left... Ernst & Young, as an equity partner, was looking to build a network of finance leaders. And we realized that we were both trying to work with the same audience. So we thought rather than trying to compete against each other, it would be a very good idea if we joined forces. And CFO, in the form that it's in today, kind of was born around that sort of point. We ended up in lockdown. Dan's vision wasn't a purely online business, but because of the circumstances we got into, it became online. My ability to work in front of clients face-to-face disappeared. So it gave us the impetus to to really get on and do something.
0: It's amazing how many people, businesses started and ideas came and things changed because of COVID, right? The online world is accelerated probably 20 years due to COVID, right? Of things that, yes, they were happening, but the level at which they're happening now, training, You know, remote meetings, so many things. So that's a great story there, and I appreciate you sharing kind of the background in accounting and implementation. You know how it used to not be called FP&A, but you were doing that kind of work. So, you know, question I have for you: I know Grow CFO. Obviously, one of the things you help do is develop CFOs, develop finance leaders. You have an assessment on your website called the CFO Competency Assessment. Could you maybe talk a little bit about what that is and who that's for?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably first answer. Who's grow CFO for? And you know, there, there are two primary groups of people in grow CFO. There are there's a group of folk who were, would aspire to be CFOs, and there's a group of folk who are already CFOs. And probably there are more folk that are, are around as our members that are in the early part of their CFO career than there are experienced folk. What we're we're doing to the the first group, the aspiring CFOs, is we're helping them get through the the skills gap that they need to to make the jump to a CFO role. What we're doing to help the CFOs is that they're, they're realizing that, oh, suddenly I'm the external face of finance rather than the internal face. I've got a whole load of new challenges that I never knew about now that I'm a CFO. Oh, please help me. So one of the things that we really have those new CFOs with is mentoring. We got to a point that it those a lot of those CFOs said to us, great, you're doing some fantastic things for my development. Now, I need to develop my finance team. And this was after we'd probably been in COVID for about 12 months or so. Training in the traditional ways it happened, more or less cancelled. So we, we said to those finance leaders, well, what sort of training do you want for your team? And we developed a finance team training program as well. So now, we're not... At the level that we're providing training to your account payable ledger clerk, but we certainly got things that are in there that would be relevant to anybody who's relatively senior in fpna the head of fpna the immediate number two to that person for the financial controller, for the head of finance. So we cover all of that kind of thing. But you asked Paul about the CFO competency framework. Well, one of the things we found initially with our future CFOs was, a, we needed a way of helping them understand the skills gap that they had. What skills have you got today? Where do you need to improve? Where do you need to look to develop to be ready to take on the CFO role? So the framework evolved and we, we defined nine competencies. We defined five skills in each of the nine competencies. So that's 45 skills altogether. and. We then said, right, great. Initially, the assessment started as two or three PowerPoint slides where you you added notes to them. Then we developed this as a more expansive thing into a Google form. Now we've realized that actually we need to have a full app because you can go in and assess yourself in the competency framework against each of those 45 skills. You can give yourself sort of a, a rating of one to four, depending on how experienced you are fine, that probably doesn't tell you much you didn't already know. But after you've taken it, you then get a report coming back. And the report, it's about a 20-odd page report, and it compares you with your peer group, first of all, overall across the nine competencies. But then in each competency, it goes and compares you on the five skills to other members of your peer group. We've had several hundred people take the framework we know what the results look like for particular areas and we can give you a very good picture of how your skills compare against your peers it's a really really powerful tool completely free to do if you're interested to see how you actually fare and just go across the growcfo.com top menu you'll see competency framework in the menu bar just click on it it'll take about 15 minutes to go through the questions 45 questions, one per skill, and then there's three or four at the end that help us just segment you into your particular peer group so you get the right benchmark in the report that we send out.
0: Got it. I might I might have to try that myself. Not that I'm uh, looking for any CFO roles, but it would be interesting to see how that plays out. So yeah. appreciate I mean, you sharing Yeah, I've done it for
1: myself, and I mean, I'm not looking for a CFO role these days. <laughs> I'm doing something very, very different. And it was really interesting to see where where my weaknesses were. And from a consulting career and doing things like developing balanced scorecard methodologies, and the FPIA sort of skills were very strong. But no, have I been involved in a fundraiser or a merger and acquisition at a detail level? Nope. I scored uh, probably the lowest score possible in that particular competency.
0: Yep, I would have a few like those, like audit. I was not an auditor. I'm not an accountant. I like to you know say I am I'm FP&A. Because people bet, you're an accountant. Like, no, I'm not. And they're kind of surprised sometimes. But you know, kind of talking to that in FPNA, you know, obviously today, you know, the CFO role has changed a lot over the last, you know, 20, 30 years and continues to evolve. So we see more data, other things involved. How how important in your mind is it, you know, obviously doing this assessment for a CFO to have FP&A experience today?
1: I think you you probably need to be a fairly rounded individual. You don't have to have huge experience in everything, but you need to know at least the basics of every one of the nine competency areas. FP&A, I think, is something that that is quite key because now, what does the CFO uniquely bring to the board? Bring to the top table brings an understanding of the data, an understanding of the information that the CFO can interpret to help the rest of the business. And that's the unique skill you bring across. Yeah, the framework shows you soft skills, it shows you leadership skills, it shows you governance and control. But a lot of those you kind of take for granted, or some of them you would get from any member of the C-suite. But I think where... The CFO has a unique playing playing space is understanding the numbers, understanding not necessarily just the numbers themselves, but what drives the numbers and being able to explain that to the business. So I think FPNA from that point of view is hugely important.
0: That that makes sense to me, and I would agree it's hugely important to understand the numbers. I think, you know, as I hear you talk about it, you don't have to have direct FP&A experience, but you need to understand the numbers. You need to understand, obviously, the budgeting forecasting process, what the board's looking for in that, how to present it, the economics behind it, you know, all those things that are drivers to those inputs.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And But I, I'd say, you know, sort of understanding the, the budgeting process, that's in the basics. I actually think CFO is going beyond that and is is starting to get you know much more into things like zero-based budgeting, being able to to really challenge the rest of the business about whether a cost should be in the budget or not.
0: I would agree with you. I think that's a huge thing, especially in the current economic environment, as we've seen, you know, investors aren't willing to pay for just growth anymore. Right? They want some they want a better idea that profitability is coming, that you're controlling expenses, that there's discipline there, and CFOs are critical to driving that. If you know you don't have financial discipline, as I like how one of my guests put, it, I think it was Ben Murray, he goes, you know, one thing that never goes out of style is financial discipline." He goes, "Not everybody follows it, but you know, as a CFO, it's like you always have to have financial discipline." Absolutely, yes,
1: and you've got to remember that growth isn't necessarily about growing the top line the value of your business is a multiplier of the bottom line not the top line so it's just as important to keep costs under control as it is to grow revenues
0: i'm going to go ahead and repeat what you said there because i think that's really well said is you know top line growth is nice it, but it's just as or more important to make sure you're growing the bottom line because at the end of the day most companies are valued on what they return on the bottom, not how much they grow on the top.
1: Yeah, and the CFO's role as well is to understand that not everything that you're growing on the top line gives the same result to the bottom line and has to be the person who's talking to the sales and marketing team and saying, fine, you think it's lovely to have a yellow variant of that, but have you looked at the costs of producing a yellow variant of that? No, it's a lovely, sexy product to have in the catalogue, but do we really want it? And one of the things I do teach in the classroom, Paul, is activity-based costing. And I've got a lovely example. It's a company, they, they simply have two products. They have the, the basic, very, very straightforward widget, and then they have the deluxe version. The deluxe version is about twice the price of the basic one. And the sales team is encouraged to go out and build revenue and sell the deluxe version. And the, the starting point of the example shows that the sales team is selling more and more, but the profit that the company is producing is going down. And we go through the costings behind the product, the way they're allocating costs. You know, they're using some fairly basic methods. And they've allocated way too much cost to the simple widget, nowhere near enough to the deluxe product and that is that is absolutely typical in my experience that we always over cost the simple and undercost the complex and one of our jobs in fpna and for the cfo to be explaining to the sales team to the marketing team is that the real cost of the stuff that they're selling and make sure they're focused on the right things well
0: said, and I think that's an area where finance, fp and CFO, you can drive huge value when you understand those margins, you're making sure that the commission plans align with them, that you're incentivizing the right behavior, not you're incentivizing them to sell the more expensive product that really is not giving you more profit because you've misallocated expenses. You know, the example I would often use is I uh, supported a call center. And the way we allocated, you know, medical cost was it was the same across everybody. It was just done on the number of employees in the cost center. It's like, well, yes, but only about 30% of these employees are actually taking benefits. Most of them have it through a spouse. And so you're you're, you're loading, you know, an extra 15% of cost onto this business. And you need to consider that when we price it, you know, what margins and what's competitive. And that was always one of the examples I would give. And I would often adjust it for management decisions, even though the corporate number was, you know, X, I'd say, okay, when we're really looking at pricing and understanding what's really going on, we're going to adjust this so that
1: we know the real cost. Absolutely. And I'd say the one skill that is invaluable if you're in that kind of role is to understand how to do activity analysis. You know, people think of activity-based costing as something that's really key to a manufacturing process. Well, actually, I disagree with them totally it's really key to the to a service it's really key to just about anything you do and if you can look at your processes you can divide the processes up into sensible chunks look at who's doing them and then measure the time that those people are taking because people drive so much cost in a business people will drive your office cost people will drive your it cost People will drive you travel cost, all sorts of things. So if you can understand what people are spending their time doing, you know, typically customer service team, which customers are they spending the time dealing with? Which products are they spending the time dealing with? Yeah. And this is one of the things you may find simple product. Well, hang on a minute. We're not making apparently that much margin on it. You know, it's simple. It never fails. You never get a customer complaint. It never breaks down. So, no, the customer service team spending all their time looking after the more complex product. It has a big margin, but you know what? It creates all sorts of problems. It always has customers ringing us up. It's understanding those sorts of things because they're what drives cost.
0: That is a really good example you gave there with the products and understanding those costs. Even if you're not doing allocations at a corporate level or you're not doing official activity-based, which I haven't done, right? It's mostly a manufacturing activity-based costing. You have to understand how to properly allocate costs. Think about drivers and be able to make those adjustments, even if it's you know not something that's done on a monthly basis in the company. Maybe it should be. But as a finance person, you have to be able to understand how to do that analysis and how to, you know, adjust to get to the true picture if that's not something you're doing. Because so many companies don't do a great job of truly understanding the cost behind things and how it it impacts different products. Yeah. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders, multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. Data Rails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Data Rails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex. Consolidating everything into one place. Secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up-to-date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel. Embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. All right. So, you know, kind of next question here for you. Let's say if Someone's working in FP&A today. Obviously, most of the people who listen to our show are working in FP&A today, and they, you know, they have a goal of wanting to become a CFO. What advice would you offer
1: them? Okay, the first piece of advice, and I've talked about the competency framework across on the Grow CFO site, and go do that. But actually, within our insights page, there's a very interesting report that we published a couple of months ago called Roots to CFO, and we we did a large amount of research looked at 500 CFOs, how they got there and what the route was that they progressed through. Now, I think it's very interesting to get that, see where CFOs came from, see the sort of experience they had. Did they start off in audit? Did they start off in industry rather than the the accounting profession? If they started off in the accounting profession, what level were they at when they stepped across into industry? How many roles in industry did they have before they took that CFO? Took that jump to CFO. Did they stay with the same company? Did they move cross employers? We spotted a big trend actually in the first CFO role, typically being a step down into a smaller company to the one that they built experience up in. So you can get a very good feel for the route that a lot of people have taken. And we've also put in there some of the, some of the insights we've got out of the competency framework and we show Typical profiles of somebody with an audit background. Typical profiles of somebody with a, a financial control background. Typical profile of somebody who's been big time involved in mergers and acquisitions, possibly from um, more of a finance house background. And you can start seeing the, the differences in skills from each of those. So I think great place to look and start understanding what you need to move on to become a CFO is grab a copy of that report. It's not your standard marketing type giveaway. Yes, you've got to put an email address in to get it, but it's not marketing. It's 30 or 40 pages of fairly solid content.
0: Got it. No, it sounds like a really helpful tool. And I've heard of others doing things like that, of you know kind of trying to look at and understand that path. I think uh, AFP, you know, I've done a few people where they talk about how different that path can be for many different people and how it's kind of winding in and out of you know FP&A and different places. So definitely, that'll be interesting. I'll have to take a look at that.
1: Yeah, you know, there's another another side to that question as well, Paul. I'd say to anybody that wants to become a CFO, what sort of CFO do you want to become? We typically see three different profiles. There's there's kind of the financier CFO who specialises in Startup companies going through fundraising rounds, mergers and acquisitions, and moving between comp to company and doing typically that sort of thing. Then there's the the transformational CFO, who's much more ops-based, looking to make big improvements in processes in the way that the internals of the company work together, often head of more than one department, might be head of finance, might be head of procurement, might even be head of HR, might be running the IT function. Then this is the strategist CFO who is really is up there in the boardroom, right hand man to the or right hand woman to the CEO, looking all the time at the strategic direction of the company, implementing the strategic plans, things like that. Somebody from an FP and a background could be fitting into any of those roles, depending on what they want. And some of the skills you might have. I'd always say to people, you work on your strengths. And you find a darn good number two to cover your weaknesses.
0: That is really good advice. I was talking, we had somebody on recently who just became a CFO. Uh, CJ Gustafson is his name, who just became a CFO for the first time. And he talked about how uh, he didn't have accounting experience. And so one of the first things he was doing was making sure he had a really strong controller. Make sure I have somebody who has that experience. He's like, I'm not going to focus on that. That's not my strength, but I'm going to make sure I have somebody who can complement me in that area.
1: Yeah. And I, the CFO on my show, similarly didn't have a finance background. Actually, he's actually come out of sales and marketing background. You yep. know, we had a fantastic conversation about return on investment on marketing spend. We, we looked at all sorts of things in the sales pipeline. There were the really good analytics that you should be following. And he had a completely different approach to a financial controller would come through that was very much focused on the P and L account.
0: Yeah, I, I could see that coming from a marketing background. Yeah, definitely a different way to look at it. And I'm sure there was some benefit coming from that. So I'm curious, you know, within your community, what are the most common maybe questions you get from CFOs in the community? What do you see as their kind of biggest challenges and opportunities right now?
1: Well, we, we've got a Slack group. That's anybody that joins. And Grow CFO is, is both a free community, and you can go and join today for free or to get access to all the training material, you've got to be a premium member. But the free community gets you in the Slack group. So what am I seeing in the Slack group? There are lots of questions around IT systems, lots of questions from people who are perhaps expanding into a new territory for the first time, wanting some simple advice, like do you know a good accountant that looks after small businesses in... One this morning that was in the United States from a company in the UK. There was another one a few days ago from a company, I think it was a UK company again, was looking for for similar services in Spain. Now, those sorts of practical questions come up in the community all the time. But there's always a huge amount of interest in finance function automation, getting right at the front of where the finance function should be. And actually we we run... Once or twice a month, we run on a Zoom session uh, that's called The Future of Finance Functions. Well, Paul, you've been a guest on there yourself. You were on there talking yeah. about fp systems. We've talked about yes. blockchain. We've talked about cryptocurrency. We've talked about simple things like automating your expenses. I think the amount of interest you get from head of finance CFO about oh, how do I make sure my finance function is... Fit for the the 21st century and using all of these modern fintech tools that are available how do i integrate those and am i using the right accounting system that gives me the opportunity to go, and, to go and integrate with this stuff and then out of that how do i take my people on a
0: change journey that that doesn't surprise me at all listening to you say that somebody told me the other day they did a survey of cfos and the biggest thing they were looking at was you know basically fp a platforms for the next year. You know, automation is huge right now and figuring out what is the right technology stack to ensure we're able to focus our team on value-add activities versus data cleansing and data preparing. Is that ever going to go away? No, there's always going to be some level of data cleansing, some preparing, but it shouldn't be the majority of the job like it is in so many departments today. I mean, I can remember at a director level spending 60% of my time Cleaning data. Unfortunately, I think I worked two jobs because I spent so much time cleaning the data and I still had to do the managing side of the job.
1: Right. And so. If I reflect back, Paul, on the last 20 odd years, sort of being in PwC in 2000, 2001, where we were building that balanced scorecard methodology, you'd go into a client, you'd put a scorecard together, or you'd work with the client to say what should be on this scorecard. The problem then was great can understand what drives the business we can understand what we need to measure where's the data and then the next thing would have been okay so we need to implement some new systems so we can get this data we can collect it we can process it flip forward 20 years and we've got exactly the opposite problem we've got way way too much data every system seems to have its dashboard its ability to report something and Finding out what it is you actually need to know versus what the systems will tell you is a huge thing. Because all of those systems have so much rich data, as the accountant, and I'll say accountant here because I think a skill of an accountant is reconciling stuff, you end up across the business with multiple versions of the truth. The system A has one number, system B has a different number, both purporting to be the same thing. What's right? What's right? How do I pull them into a common data repository that's got the right value in it? Probably as a COO of Grow CFO. at the moment, my biggest problem is pulling together a dashboard of information. It's not necessarily financial information. Online business. I want to know how many people have been on various pages of the website. How many people have downloaded various brochures? I want to know all sorts of things about how engaged my membership base is. And that all that information is actually there, but it's all over the place. And another one, like you, a podcaster, how many people have downloaded the podcast, which is my most listened to episode, getting the insight into what people want to hear versus what they don't want to hear. Information is all over the place and you can spend forever just collating it in one place and that, that to me is the challenge of FpNA and data analytics going forward
0: I, I would agree with you data is you know in many ways it's the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity right it's kind of a, both sides of that coin it's so hard because we have so much data you know what of the latest study I saw right, at the current pace that we're creating data we're doubling all the data that was created in the history of the world every two years right I mean that's that's a rate that is just amazing.
1: I don't want data pool. I want usable information that I can make decisions with. And there's a big, big difference.
0: Agree. And that's the job. You got to be able to cut through that noise and get to what's really important. That's why I like to emphasize when people are like, well, you know, we got all these metrics to track. Like, well, let's start with key metrics. And key means what are your drivers? What's really making a difference to your business? What do you need to know? Not what do you want to know? What's nice to know? What's fundamental that if you don't know is going to have a material impact on your business? And like, let's start there and we can build from there if we need to. But let's start with the the 80. What's really important? Because so often we start by trying to boil the ocean and come up with these dashboards that there's so much on them that it's just information overload. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've spent hour upon hour looking at data in, say, Google Analytics. Oh, we got... uh, six views on the website from Southwest China last week. Oh, isn't that interesting? I know three hours later, having looked at all of this fantastic stuff, you start thinking, yeah, that was an interesting three hours. Do I actually know anything different that I can make a decision with? Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I I am totally laughing because I've done
0: the exact same thing, looking at the analytics of my website. Oh, there's these two people from Pakistan. Does that really matter? Or
1: you're looking at the podcast. Oh, we we.
0: We've had people from 110 countries.
1: Yeah, but there's I, I do no dis- for on, on our podcast distribution dashboard. There's a lovely global map, and every time you get a download in a country, it turns the country from white to blue. So, of course, my, my ambition is to get every country on the globe turned to blue. Okay. Yeah, so I, I can relate.
0: I look at mine as well and go, okay, I got every state in the U.S. or I've got this or that. I'm kind of funny about it. Not that I do anything to necessarily control it, but it still is
1: interesting to look at. You know, there's one country in South America that's bugging me at the moment. It's the only one left in the, in the, in the whole continent that hasn't downloaded an episode of the Gross CFO show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's funny. All right. I'm going to shift gears just a little bit here. So, you know, obviously having worked with a lot of CFOs and done a lot of work over your career, do you have maybe one or two CFOs that you really admire or that you've learned from that maybe you could tell our audience about?
1: Yeah. And funny, you, you sent me the questions in advance. And I suppose I looked down the list and thought, oh, yeah, Paul's asking me a load of standard stuff, about gross CFO and so on. I came to that question. I thought, no, I've i got to sit and think about this one for a minute or two. And I thought about it. And actually, I went way back to my days in ICI, before I became a consultant. So we're back in the 1990s, and we were a whole group of businesses in ICI Chemicals and Polymers Limited. We had a group finance director for the, the Chemicals and Polymers group, and nobody had CFOs back then. You we were all finance directors. Same thing. A chap called Jim Meekie. Now, Jim was absolutely brilliant. I think the thing about Jim was he had a some really, really strong people skills. Every person in his. And he had a finance team under him that probably was, it could have been up to 500 people, huge. But from the most junior to the most senior person in that team, you were made to feel that you mattered. You know, if you had a problem, his door was always open. And he had this uncanny knack as well. If you had a proposal for him, and you'd spent ages putting together the business case for whatever it was you wanted to do. And that business case was 99% watertight. Jim had this uncanny knack of being able to spot the 1% that wasn't watertight and have a darn good challenge in the conversation. And that to me is just a unique skill. That's one. And I bring that forward to today. And there's, there's a couple of people. They both work with us in Grow CFO and they're, they're two people on our mentoring team. And again, it's the soft skills, it's the people skills that they bring and that they mentor lots of other CFOs in. Catherine Clark, who's our head of mentoring, and Susanna serrano Davy is the other one. And coincidentally, as we record this, Susanna is publishing a book today, fascinating book. It's I Wish I Had Known. And she's looking back to herself as a, a young accountant And all of the things that she wished she'd known in that early part of her career, she was qualifying as she was going through her first job, whatever. And she's written a book about it. And believe it or not, it's not just for accountants. It's for everybody. Quick plug for Susanna there. (laughs) I'm sure she'll
0: appreciate that. And it sounds like it'll be a, a good book. I really liked how you talked about, you know, the, the first example there, he had both those people skills And the technical skills you mentioned how he could boil something down and i think you know that's so true so kind of speaking to that what are maybe those you know one or two skills that you think make a cfo most impactful today what is it they really need to have at the end of the day to be to truly be impactful in their role
1: the cfo has got to be the business partner to the ceo and what's important about business partnering i think it's understanding what the other person wants, what the other person needs. Business partnering definitely isn't about, here's the results of the business this month, here's the profit, here's all the variances, blah de, blah de blah It's about understanding what actually matters, understanding the drivers behind the numbers, and being able to articulate those and being able to say, hey, we've potentially got a problem here. And they're not giving a recommendation, but bringing forward a number of options that can be discussed and being able to show the pros and cons of all the options. To me, that's what makes a great business partner. It's also what makes a great CFO.
0: Well said. And that leads right into the next question I want to ask you a little bit about. I know you guys offer a training course called the Business Partnering Bootcamp. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um We've actually just run that for the first time as a public bootcamp. It takes place over two or three months. It's a series of seven two-hour workshops going through the process. And oh, I'm saying we've run it for the first time as a public course. That's because we've run the bootcamp several times for individual companies who want to take their business partnering team and put them through the course. So you'd, you'd run it for half a dozen to a dozen people, depending on the size of the organization. This time, we've given publicly the ability for smaller organizations who might only want to put one or two people through the program. And essentially, it's a sales and marketing course for accountants.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. One of the best books I read was called Spin Selling, and it was really about the sales process. And that helped me be a better business partner. You know, it helped me be a better finance person. There's a lot of truth to that, that, you know, good marketing and selling behavior can really help with business partnering, it can help with influencing and storytelling, driving, decision-making. So that's an interesting way to put it. I'd never quite thought of it exactly in those words, but I like that.
1: And this is it. Uh, probably the, the great target for this course, it would be people with an FPNA background. But what we're not telling you how to do, Paul, is to do FPNA. We're telling you how to, take data, turn it into usable information. We're telling you how to present information to the business. And we spend one class, we spend a load of time on the the rule of three. And effectively, we really, really reinforce that if you tell more than three things to the business, you've told them too much, they will never remember more than three things. So you might have a pile of stuff about the analytics you've got a hold of this month, but what are the three most important? There's also a load of stuff that touched on it already about giving people options rather than recommendations.
0: It's a lot of great information. And, you know, as you were saying that, it made me think of this morning, uh, I posted on LinkedIn, you know, I post out there daily, but I was preparing it. I talked about the art of influencing, right? Being able to persuade people and shared some of my favorite books and how there's a science to it. I think, you know, influencing people is a huge part of business partnering because rarely you know, outside of CFO, but even CFO, rarely do we have ownership over the people we're trying to influence. They rarely report into us. It's usually people often that are our senior, or they have more authority in the company, and we're trying to help guide sometimes their decision-making, guide them to see the things we need to see. And so being able to influence them is critical in our role, and influencing without direct power. Another thing we teach
1: in there is the, the power of asking the question, "Why?" And we argue that unless you've asked why six times, you haven't got to the real cause of whatever's going on.
0: Interesting. I've usually heard five. When you said that, I was immediately thinking five, but six. I got I to remember that one more drill down.
1: Sales are down by 20% this month. Why? Oh, because we didn't sell as much. Why? Oh, because the sales force were doing this. Oh, why were they doing that?
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing
1: all the way down to realise what's actually going on with the numbers compared to your classic piece of commentary in the in the against the accounts. Sales are down by twenty percent because against budget because of uh, conditions. Well, we sold a little bit more than we were planning to, but the price was a bit less. End of story. Now you've told your classic price and quantity variance. Has it actually told you anything about the real problem? Has it actually told you anything about when sales are going back on track to meet budget? No. And there's no recommendation in there. There's no
0: advice. There's no actionable insight in that analysis. Actionable
1: insight is what business partnering is all about. You know? Now, If anybody listening is keen on the idea of that business partnering boot camp, well, you know, don't think because we're just a UK organization that it's not for you. Well, we're not actually a UK organization. We've probably now got as many members in the US as we have in the UK
0: definitely that sounds like a you know great course for those who may be interested and we'll make sure in the show notes we link to your website so people can take a look at that and you know see a little bit of what's out there so now we're going to come we have a few standard questions we like to ask everybody i know we're coming toward the the end of our time so there's a couple of fun ones in here where we get to know you a little bit better and a few different questions here so the first one this is an, i wouldn't call this a fun question but this is one that we always like to see what people will say Because it really gets back to learning and learning experiences. So can you describe a time you have experienced a failure at work? And what did you learn from the failure? Like, what was the takeaway from, you know, things not going as you planned, so to speak?
1: Oh, I can remember one particular one. It goes actually way back to, you know, I mentioned I was in ICO and we were taken over by the, the German company. Well, part of the business was a really, really specialist plastic polymer business that compounded different plastics together and the business had been struggling and i did a load of work to put in new product costing mechanisms and i started using them and then part of putting together the results of the business and suddenly for a couple of months the business started making a profit instead of a loss then one day i spotted an error in the costing model and I had to break the news to the business team that, oh, sorry, we've reported a profit for the last two months. Well, actually we didn't make one. Now that is incredibly embarrassing. A lot of red faces. There were some reasonably big repercussions at the time. And you know, what's the lesson? Flamey, well, check your spreadsheet before you do anything with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've, I can relate. I've had more than a few errors that i've made over the years and it is the worst to go in front of people and be like there's a wrong number sorry what you thought was going on is not what's actually happening yeah double and triple checking your work is really important even having you know a second set of eyes because we're all human and it's so easy to get a number wrong and not realize it till it's too
1: late and yeah, going into pwc discovered that we had a financial modeling specialist team they were called business dynamics bunch of guys with brains the size of a planet. They competed against each other to see who could produce the best piece of Visual Basic in a spreadsheet. But they also produced a book called Spreadsheet Modeling Best Practice and the principles that were set down in there about document, what the requirement is, then build the model against the documentation. Get somebody else to test the model for you. Compare it to the documentation, particularly if you're going to use this model with a client. Say you make a mistake on a model you put together for a client, you'll be in court.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, very, very easy. Yeah, for an MA or something like that, Yeah, you can be in trouble in a hurry. No question. End up in a courtroom. I agree. All right. So the next question we like to ask people is a personal question, just to kind of get to know you a little better. So we ask everybody, what's something unique about you that you could share with our audience? Something they wouldn't find online or something that, you know, wouldn't be easy for people to know if they Googled you.
1: Well, Paul, at at this point, we're obviously opposite sides of the Atlantic. So it's Friday, it's 5.15, and then a certain age of the UK audience will yell, it's crackerjack. But we'll not go into that one. What would I normally be doing at five fifteen on Friday? Well, I'd have definitely stopped work. <laughs> I'd probably be upstairs in the attic space in the house, playing trains. Playing what? Trains. Model railroad.
0: Oh, got it. Model trains. Cool. That, my brother is a huge. He has a big model train, and he absolutely loves playing them. Yeah. So Any favorite thing you've built or done
1: as far as your train hobby there? uh this this is where I come back to being a little bit of the the systems geek. Now, at the moment, the major attraction for me is is playing about with Raspberry Pi, Arduinos, and coding, and automating the thing.
0: Yes, that I will agree with you. that's where the the engineering, the systems geek side comes out, like all of us have doing that fun. There's a lot of us that like to be able to do that, so that that's really cool. Thank you for sharing. Well, kind of speaking about a geeky type of thing, that leads right into our next question. You know, obviously, Excel is a tool that we all use. You can't, get, you can't get away from it and audit and finance and accounting. Do you have a favorite Excel? It could be a function, feature, formula. What's your favorite thing about
1: Excel? Yeah. And these days, and I used to build in the past big financial models. More recent pieces of consulting work, I've had a financial modeler do it for me. So what do I use Excel for these days? Quite often, it's manipulating big tables of information. Like, oh, I've got this huge pile of contacts. I've got to put them into our CRM system. So I'm using Excel to sort the data, to format the data, and quite often just to make sure that... that field, the value that's going to that field, it shouldn't be uppercase. It should be lowercase. Otherwise I've got too, too many bits of data that'll mismatch once it gets into the CRM. So I'm using Excel for that sort of thing at the moment, spotting duplicates, things like that. So I'm not really doing any modeling as such. And probably the useful formulas that come in are some of the text strings. So you can, you can combine a couple of, a couple of things together into a string. You can break a string up into separate fields, things like that. They tend to be the things I do now. Got
0: it. Are you aware, so you'll see my geek side, but Microsoft just released three new uh, text formulas called text after, text before, and text split, where you can assign different delimiters and split it after certain points and do multiple splits without having to use left, mid, or right. Oh, I didn't know about that. The geek in me is now wanting to find out more. (laughs) Yeah. No, they're new. Now, depending on when you update, some people, their companies do a semi-annual update to 365. But if you're part of a monthly channel, it's already been released into general release. They're called text before, text after, and text split. So if you're doing a lot with your uh, text type formulas, I recommend uh, going out to YouTube and looking up a, a good video on them because they're really handy.
1: Yeah. Well, I've got Office 365 installed, even though it's on a Mac. And it's got real-time updates on it. So if it's been released, it's probably there already, and I just haven't realized Yeah, you should it. have it then. Yeah. Yeah. So there you yeah, go. There's, one, your, uh, there's your Excel tip. one of the nice the things, Paul, as well, about you know, working for yourself as opposed to working for big corporate. I always vowed as soon as I went into working for myself, I'd have the IT that I wanted, not the IT that the company wanted. And if I fancied buying something, I'd just buy it. I didn't have to put a business case together or prove that the old one was broken or anything like that. So
0: I'm learning that as well. There are definitely some advantages that way. So we have just two questions left for you. So the last kind of interview question is what advice would you offer to someone starting a career today in FP&A? What would be, if you could offer them
1: one piece of advice, what would you give them? That's a tough one, Paul. One piece of advice. I'd say, Go get a book called Strengths Finder 2.0 by the Gallup organization. Go take the online test that's in that book. It'll tell you what your five biggest strengths are, and it'll give you strategies to maximize them. And in whatever workplace you're in, try to move into places that you can maximize your five strengths. As you're trying to move forward in your career, understand what your strengths are and try to move into roles, positions, that allow you to leverage those. Because you know what? If you're strong in something, and you take time to develop it, you can become fantastically good. If you're weak in something, well, hey, you can spend a lot of time to become mediocre. So what? Focus on what you're good at, what you enjoy doing, would be the advice.
0: Very good advice. And I I agree you generally will get a lot more benefit by focusing on your strengths than your weaknesses. Sometimes there's a weakness that it's so big you have to get it to a certain level to you know maybe accomplish what you want. But after that, double down on your strengths cuz becoming out being outstanding at something versus being mediocre there's a big difference for sure. All righty, so last question, if people want to learn more about you or you know follow you, what's the best way to do that? Oh, definitely LinkedIn. All right. So you can find Kevin on LinkedIn there and we'll have that in show notes Your LinkedIn along with the Grow CFO website. Now, Kevin, I just want to take a moment and thank you for being on the show today. Really enjoyed getting to chat with you. I look forward to being on your podcast again in the future and you know, hopefully we'll have you on another time. But thank you for you know carving out an hour on a Friday uh, evening basically for us. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. And it's very definitely beer o'clock here in the UK. Yeah, well, you, uh, you
0: enjoy your evening and have a good weekend.
1: And yourself, you take care.